Hello, I'm Kelly McVeigh. This is Carry On with Kelly, the podcast where we unpack the stories of my travel, cancer, recovery, and self-discovery from one small bag. This is episode nine of season three. I am recording this on July 14th, 2021. I recorded episode one of this season way back in April, April 25th to be exact, which was my rebirth day, which was the anniversary of my stem cell transplant. So back in 2018, right at the beginning, right after my diagnosis, I found out I had to have a stem cell transplant, which would give me the best shot at life. So I dove right into it, which is my MO to start researching things. None of the research that I found was really complete. It didn't all pertain to me. Everybody's stem cell transplant is so unique and it could be for several different diseases. And as I would soon discover, every institution had their own protocols for stem cell transplants. So just for instance, I was in the hospital for a few weeks. Other places let you do the stem cell transplant and then go home and just go back to the hospital on a daily basis. So every institution had their own protocols. So all this research that I did really didn't give me a firm picture of what I was about to undergo. But there were still some things that occurred or, or rather some things that didn't occur during my stem cell transplant and the prep that I still to this day don't understand. So just to give you a few examples, I had my stem cell transplant at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, UPMC, and all of the research on their pages indicated that in order to have a stem cell transplant, you needed to have a home inspection, you needed to have a dental exam, because apparently a lot of these chemicals that they're giving you is very damaging to your teeth. And you needed to have a mental evaluation before the stem cell transplant would be approved. So I was waiting for all of these steps. When I got through my first few rounds of the chemotherapy induction treatment, they assigned me with a nurse coordinator who her main job was just to schedule me for all of my treatments and doctor's appointments because closer, the closer we got to the stem cell transplant, they became almost a daily occurrence. The other thing is, is that they needed to prove that your support system was in place. And so these were, none of these things worried me, but I knew these were all boxes that I had to check in order to get my transplant. Very early on after my diagnosis, I started going to some support group meetings. And at this one, there was a woman, older, I'm going to say in her 60s, black woman. And I don't know if that is important in the story, but part of me thinks it might be. And she spoke at the one support group meeting, explaining that she had failed her pre-transplant assessments again. She didn't have a support group. She didn't have someone to take care of her. Her house couldn't pass inspection and she didn't pass the medical uh, evaluation. So she had these stem cells frozen and they wouldn't let her get the transplant. So that was one of my first memories. And, And I really panicked 
not because I had any issues, just because it seemed like based on her speaking that these were really high thresholds. And all I could think of is what if I don't pass something and I'm never going to get this transplant that's going to save my life. So I was living with my sister and my brother-in-law at the time, which we've talked about before. Our main worry is that she had a little puppy, Oswald. At the time, he was less than a year old. And we thought we were going to have to rehome Oswald because everything that they were concerned about was the possibility of me getting an infection after the transplant. And they specifically talked about dogs in the home. But that didn't matter because we never had a home inspection. They never came to the house. A few days before the transplant, I was at UPMC Medical Center. Uh, I don't remember why, but the cancer center, specifically the Mary Lemieux Blood Cancer Center, is the floor is split into two. So one side is where you go for treatment. The other side is where you go for a medical exam. So I, I remember being in a treatment chair and there was a younger man across like the walkway from me in another treatment chair. And I kind of got the idea that we were in the same spot of our transplant process, whatever was going on that day. And I heard them specifically telling him that, you know, they would do the stem cell retrieval and they would freeze his stem cells until he finished all his dental work. From where I was sitting, his teeth looked fine. Again, I don't think I have problems with my teeth, but we never did a dental exam to know. We just sort of skipped over that piece. And this was well before I ever saw a therapist. So we never had a mental exam. And I could probably guarantee you that passing a mental exam at that point in my treatment was probably going to be pretty difficult for me. I had a great support structure, but they never asked the questions. So still to this day, I wonder why I didn't have to go through any of these pre-transplant evaluations. It's not something I think about every day, but occasionally it's something that pops into my mind. Was I just that sick? Was the stem cell transplant my only hope? So we did it without checking all the boxes. I don't know. I guess that's something I'll never know. It's not something that I've, I've thought to bring up to my doctors. One other thing that all my research pointed to, all these references to the 100-day mark. So 100 days post-transplant, you're supposed to stay in isolation those 100 days. And they talked about all of these restrictions that you would be on these first 100 days. So I was in the hospital, what, 18 days at the beginning. From there, I went home to my sister's house where I spent the next 43 days moving from my bed to her couch. I took little Oswald on walks to the end of the block, to the end of the second block. Every day I walked a little further. Every day or so I had to go to the cancer center for an exam and blood work. So this is what I did for 43 days after I got out of the hospital. And then on day 61, post-transplant, which would have been June 25th, I saw Dr. Raptus, my hematologist at UPMC, which is Hillman Cancer Center, and he lifted all of my restrictions. I was not expecting that in the least. His exact words were, 
I'm going to lift all of your restrictions. And other patients might have heard, I can start getting back to a sense of normalcy. I can get my life back. I heard, go ahead and book the flight. So that night I got back to my sister's and I booked a round trip ticket to Brisbane, Pittsburgh, Toronto, Vancouver, Brisbane. It was a very long journey. So July 14th, 2019, I left to spend the next six weeks in Australia. At the time, I can remember thinking how strong I felt that I was, I don't want to say recovered, but I was clearly on the way to recovery. I wrote some things about how I was getting back to normal. And now that I look back, my memories of that travel day is that I could barely make it through the airport. I didn't think to reserve a wheelchair. I panicked a little because in Canada, they seemed to line up for the plane to board the plane as soon as the announcement was made. And by the time I got the strength to stand up, the line was huge. So maybe I used my baldness a little bit. I walked to the front of the line and said, I don't have the strength to stand in that line. I'd like to board, please. I did have letters from all of my doctors, but nobody gave me a hard time. I just circumvented all the lines and went and sat in my seat, clearly not having the strength to make that flight. My mom and my sister drove me to the airport that day. They dropped me off at the curb. I started crying uncontrollably as my sister hugged me goodbye. I was crying as I checked into my flights. I don't know. I don't remember anybody questioning why I was crying or even looking at me oddly. Um, I literally cried the whole way through the airport. I cried when the plane took off. I did not expect that reaction. At that point in my recovery, I was crying, but not like not uncontrollably by any means. The tears were not tears of sadness, but I can't even say that they were tears of joy. There were just so much, so many emotions that, so many things that that flight meant. And the big thing it meant was recovery. So if I could get on a plane, I guess that meant that I was going to go live my life. I was so unprepared in so many ways for that journey. At my checkup on June 25th, when Dr. Raptus released me, they had prescribed new chemo pills. So my previous chemo pill required a pregnancy test every month. This one did not, but they still only released three chemo pills at a time. So they shipped me one box with three pills. It's actually very bizarre to see. It's, it's a huge box with an, another box and then three boxes in it. So they shipped me the three pills. And in order for me to stay in Australia six weeks, I needed two rounds of chemo. So I left my hundred, my sister a hundred dollar bill, left her instructions to express ship me the next round of chemo, which we would come later to find out that that I think is considered drug smuggling because she was sending it to Reggie and I was nowhere involved in the transaction. 
when I traveled at the beginning of 2020, I learned the system a little bit. Now I know that I can get multiple cycles of chemo. I just have to pay my medical insurance up front. The doctor can write a prescription for two or three cycles at a time. So that's something that we will start looking forward to in the coming months. But back in 2019, we didn't know what we were doing. So clearly, clearly we had no clue. But anyway, that's how I ended up in Australia the summer of 2019. Reggie met me at the other end. He agreed to take care of me for those next six weeks. They, him in Australia, took their turn to nurse me back to life. So over the course of the next couple of weeks, I'll tell you some of my Australian stories. Reggie lives outside of Brisbane, so most of the stories take place there, but we did spend a week in Tasmania, which was pretty fantastic. So I'll share all that with you in the coming episodes. My travels today, July 14th, 2021, look a bit different. I'm driving to Baltimore today, which is only about a three and a half hour, four hour drive. I'm going to see a friend that I have not seen in, I believe, 25 years. I followed her travels on Facebook for the past five or six years. I've listened to her podcast with a Baltimore group, so I know more of what she did um, dealing with those travels. I recently found out that we overlapped in Manhattan back in 2006, I think we decided, which is crazy that we didn't live that far apart and I never knew. She's going to be playing an important role in my upcoming Peruvian travels in September and early October. So hopefully this is the start of a new fantastic conversation. A couple other quick updates about my life. Last week I mentioned that I had found a Pilates studio. I drove there again this Monday and the whole way there, I decided that I was never going back because it's too far of a drive. We ended up spending the whole entire uh, appointment on the gyrotonic machine, which I absolutely adore, and so did my back. So I've committed to going every Monday until I leave for Peru. I think that's a great thing, and I will just get over the driving. I've also decided, since I know I need more than once a week and I cannot do the drive more than once a week, I tried a bar class, which is only about a 20-minute drive from my house, which still doesn't thrill me. But when I lived in New York, I did bar a lot. It was in the same studio as my spin classes, so I did bar before spin and after spin, and I really enjoyed it. And so I went to a bar class, not expecting much, my body doesn't work the way it used to work, and I'm learning to accept that. But I was really shocked how I remembered what to do. There were certain things that that I could watch the instructor do and know, you know, like for instance, with one exercise, they hold the bar and pull the bar with all of their weights, all their weights on their arms. And I know that's not anything I can do with my current arm situation, but I know a different exercise to get the same muscle group. So I was pretty impressed with myself. So I made the commitment to do, you have to, for the month package, you have to commit to three months. So I will do that until I leave for Peru put it on hold. And then when I come back, I will do that until I leave at the end of December, which I don't think we've talked about why I'm leaving at the end of December, but we'll do that later. 
So that's very exciting that I'm going to commit to going to bar three or four times a week. Another thing that has come up in my life the past week are pain pills. I'm trying to get stronger pain pills. And for some reason, they won't let me. I have very mild pain pills right now that I take. I don't take them often, but I'm prescribed two a day. And so if I have a really active day and if I'm in a lot of pain, I actually hold my pain pills until later in the day, which doesn't seem really healthy to me. So I've been trying to get a stronger pain pill to take once in a while. And for some reason, none of the doctors are approving it, which completely baffles me. If I was going to abuse pain pills, I've had two and a half years to do it. I've had one prescription of oxycodone in this whole entire treatment cycles that I've been on since October of 2018. And I just finished the last couple pills in the past month, maybe. So it's not like I use them often, but it would be nice to have a backup if I'm doing a lot with my body. They still won't approve them. I do see my oncologist in the next couple weeks. So that's a conversation for another day. My MBA class, which I've talked about last week, my MBA class is not over until August 12th, something like that. And I have two assignments left since I am the only student. My professor is letting me work ahead. So every couple days I read, do some readings and do another assignment. So I'm literally down to doing an elevator pitch to investors and a two page business plan. I don't understand how this is the final course in an MBA with an entrepreneurship specialization. The course is called what? Financial Concerns of Entrepreneurs. I don't understand how this is the last class, but we're going to run with it at this point. Um, I'll get an A. That's fine. It just sort of hurts me when I'm writing those checks to pay for the classes and I don't feel like I'm getting, I don't feel like I'm learning enough but more to follow on that. And then the other big thing that's going on the past couple weeks, which this is really exciting for me. I did with my sister a couple of weeks ago on a Friday and Saturday, we did a stained glass making class. So we went to Latrobe Art Center and a local monk taught the class and he taught us how to cut the glass and, and he had a pattern together for us to, to use. And it was really hard. <laughs> Um, I wasn't expecting the cutting of the glass to be so difficult, which I guess it makes sense. You're using a lot of muscles, you know, right in the core of your back, which are all of my muscles that were sliced with my surgery. So I don't have a lot of back strength right now, but we spent two days a couple weeks ago and I had to leave because the class ran over and I had dinner plans. It turns out my sister didn't get her project done. So last week on Friday, we went to the local university and the monk has a studio in this old, old building. I think he said the building was built in like 1800, this old brick building that they're going to be tearing down. And it was just such a lovely day. He took us on a tour of his studio and he has a whole room just of yarn and uh, fibers, because he does a lot of fiber art. He has a ton of stained glass. I, I, I would love to tell you that we finished our stained glass projects, but it was more like we watched him finish our stained glass projects. He did a much better job than we did. And we were both dressed in black and the pieces that we had to do were kind of messy. So he took care of us. 
Uh, but that was a lovely, a lovely experience. And that's one of the things that I'm really enjoying about this part of my life. I'm struggling with so much of it. I am struggling with the idea that I have to drive to do things when I would prefer to walk everywhere. I struggle with the idea that my body does not do what I want it to do sometimes. I struggle with the idea that I don't know what direction specifically my career is going to go in. Will I be able to go back to work full time soon? And what does that look like? But the one thing I don't struggle with is the support system that I have here. It's just been amazing throughout everything. And I like having that. I was at my sister's the one day and she's like, it's so weird to have you here. And all I could say was, well, it's, it's kind of weird to be here, but I know what she's saying. Before I got sick, I hadn't lived here in like 20 years. So I would fly in for a couple days and then leave. And the idea that I'm here and I can do things and I contribute to life. Which is kind of nice. Why do I feel like I ended last episode on that same story? But we're going to end this episode here. I have a lot coming up in the next couple weeks. I have a couple pretty big updates of life to talk about. All good things. Um, but more to come. So we're going to be talking about the next couple weeks about my 2019 trip to Australia. And we're going to start planning my Peruvian trip September and October. So thank you for joining me of this episode of Carry On With Kelly. And there will be more to come. Have a good night.